Well, hello, and welcome to our Sunday morning podcast from Shelburne Primrose Pastoral Charge in Southern Ontario. I am Reverend Dr. Candice Bist, and along with my husband, Bruce Lee, we serve the two churches of Trinity United Church and Primrose United Church that make up the pastoral charge. It has been six weeks since we closed our church buildings, a long six weeks for some, and for others it has flown by. For some, it's been a refreshing chance to pull back from an overly booked schedule. For others, it's been a long, lonely time cut off from visitors. For some, a stressful time, both financially and concerning health matters. But we are here to lift the burden of others, and I know that many of you are doing just that, which is lovely to observe. Zoom seems to be the new way of getting around these days, and this last week we were involved in two Zoom conferences across Canada, offering presentations at both of them. The virtual conference focused on the eco-commoning project brought us the staggering vision of imagining communities of faith as radical change makers and innovators, leaders in shifting the societal, political, economic and spiritual mindset from an individualist capitalist system of thought to a relational or eco-commons way of life. I seem to recall that the commons was Jesus's home rink. Remember where he gathered people? In the meadows, down by the beach, on the front steps of people's homes. And his call to arms was to rise and resist anything and anybody that was not part of the communion way of life, the way of relational, eco-commons, the way of sharing. On Tuesday, we took part in the Civics Commons webinar, part of a larger project to reimagine how we might better find ways to live in community. It was headed up by the excellent Evergreen Collective out of Toronto, who were interested in exploring the potential to share land and infrastructure with faith-based centers. Both conferences brought to my mind this core idea of what it means to share. And that is what we are going to ponder this morning. The lens I will be using to look at sharing is not the conventional one of shared goods, though that is its natural extension. Because the kind of sharing we are going to have to bring about for the future humanity needs requires a broader base and more expansive horizon than dropping off freshly baked goods on our neighbor's doorstep, though just for the record, all drop-offs are much appreciated. This is a big topic. It's about shifting worldviews, new paradigms, a realignment of the tectonic plates, big. But we are helped somewhat this week because there was also something else of interest that happened in the virtual world, and that was the 2020 Universe in Verse Conference, a place where science and spirituality rub shoulders with poetry, and in doing so, remind us in the most beautiful of ways that we are all connected, all one, all stardust, all longing for the same thing in the end, to survive, to be loved, to be nurtured, to be cherished, 
to make a worthwhile contribution to the whole. And we all do this in our various ways while carrying the burden we bear, the storyline we are living out, the daily trials we attempt to overcome. Deep sharing is about acknowledging the burden each person bears and offering grace and generosity of thought for their journey. And if you imagine all of us doing this collectively, you will know that it is absolutely possible to bring about the ambitious dreams of our conferences this week. For when the collective flow of our hearts is given over to the great spirit that holds all of us in tenderest embrace, the impossible becomes the ordinary. Let's begin our time of reflection by retreating to our quiet center. life we lead find the room for hope to enter find the frame where we are freed clear the chaos and the clutter clear our eyes that we can see all the things that really matter be at peace and simply be Thank you. 
call to worship this morning comes from the poet and astronomer Rebecca Elson, brought to my attention by Maria Popova, supporter and host of the Universe in Verse. Elson was diagnosed at the tender age of 29 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and died some 10 years later. But she made of her time here on Earth a loveliness that is left behind in both her scientific research centered on galaxy formation and chemical evolution and her beautiful poetry published after her death by her husband and a friend under the title Responsibility to Awe. Great title, great collection of poetry. Facts are only as interesting as the possibilities they open up to the imagination, Elson wrote. And here, as she lies dying, she playfully considers this fact through the lens of her love of astronomy and life itself. Antidotes to Fear of Death by Rebecca Elson. Sometimes, as an antidote to fear of death, I eat the stars. Those nights lying on my back, I suck them from the quenching dark till they are all, all inside me, pepper hot and sharp. Sometimes, instead, I stir myself into a universe still young, still warm as blood, no outer space, just space. The light of all the not yet stars drifting like a bright mist, and all of us and everything already there, but unconstrained by form. And sometime it's enough to lie down here on earth beside our long ancestral bones, to walk across the cobble fields of our discarded skulls, each like a treasure, like a chrysalis, thinking whatever left these husks flew off on bright wings. Pray with me. God of the universe, vast and unknown, lurking around the corner, twinkling in the stars, hidden in every breath we breathe, Yahweh, Yahweh, here we are. And apparently, despite all our refusal to believe this, that is enough that we are here that we take time to consider you, to reflect on what we do not know and what you may yet reveal. 
Like children, we can only take small bites of large matters, that at least in this lifetime we will never share wholly with you, though, who knows, you are so full of surprises. We have trouble sharing. We seem to manage well enough with recipes and playdates and sometimes friends, but the broader base of sharing to which Jesus called us, here we are stumbling. We want to hold on to our own framework, our own viewpoint. We are reluctant to give up our way of life so that all may share in the riches of this world. We are stiff-necked in our refusal to see that it is you, not we, who rule this universe. We do not wish to relinquish power and control when it is a falsity to even pretend we possess either. Forgive our arrogance, humble us that we may be teachable, and allow our hearts to open to the vastness that can embrace all. Remind us once again that we are people of the way, people called to love, which is your essence. Amen. My mother thought that all smart people were scientists. And in the natural flow of her mind, this meant that if you had a child that was clever, that child was therefore meant to be a scientist. I was that clever child. And so at my mother's insistence, I took physics and chemistry in high school. Wasn't too bad, not a complete disaster anyway. And off I headed to university. Back then, way back then, you could choose two streams, art or science. That was a simple choice because, as had already been established, I was to head for the science lab. So off I trotted to those enormous gray buildings on St. George Street in Toronto that should have given me a clue I was headed in the wrong direction an entire block of gray buildings with not a flash of color in sight. Physics consisted of 800 students, five very grumpy girls with very thick glasses, 795 boys, none of whom knew how to flirt. And you have to know, I gave it my best shot. But here's the kicker, no one wanted to be my lab partner. 
When the first exam arrived, I did my due diligence, studied hard, arrived on time, turned over the exam paper, and stared at it. Read through the whole thing, read through the whole thing again. I looked around the room, and there were those 799 students all scribbling away. And I turned back to the exam and stared at it some more. Physics was a complete and utter failure at all levels. Chemistry. I don't know if anyone has done any serious research on this, but I think there is a basic incompatibility between people who are excellent soup makers and those able to work carefully in the chemistry lab. Chemistry classes consisted of three-hour lab sessions every week with very clear instructions as to what was to be accomplished. If you've ever seen the kitchen when I cook, you can imagine the mess I made in the chemistry lab. And once again, no one wanted to be my lab partner. Though I do want to add that I consistently received an A+, on my lab reports, because they were lengthy poetic treatises on the endlessly imagined reasons why the experiment had not worked out as it was supposed to, accompanied by beautiful penmanship and line drawings. Chemistry, another unmitigated disaster. But a few years ago, drawn back to the alluring altar of higher education, I ventured once again into the scientific fray, partly out of curiosity, partly out of a nod to my beloved mother, and partly out of a desire to study further with a professor who seemed to be able to hold in his hands simultaneously a grand sweep of history, a deep knowledge of theology, a healthy and active respect for science, and a wondrous spirit. I trusted his intuitions. His course was called God on the Brain. It was an exploration of how neuroscientific perspectives can help us engage in cultivating a spiritual contemplative life. I was so afraid I would fail again. Neuroscience, just the word, made me frightened. But Eleanor Roosevelt is forever whispering in my ear, you must do the thing you think you cannot do. You've no idea how many times I wish Eleanor would rest in peace and stop whispering in my ear. But you know, the Great Spirit is always watching out for us, especially when we are brave. And in one of the first papers we were to read, I was offered an unexpected portal into the world of science through storytelling. It was a simple paragraph of a personal nature that my professor had written as way of introduction to a conference he was overseeing. It drew me into the sharing space of science and art, medicine and spirituality, magically opening a door into an open landscape where different frameworks, alternating perspectives could be both separate and mutual. He was writing about his late wife's death of brain cancer. She was a Presbyterian minister and a brilliant preacher, he wrote. During the 10 months of her cancer, she kept preaching, right up until a couple of weeks before her death. 
She kept preaching, even though soon after the tumor appeared, she lost her short-term memory and much of her ability to organize her world and much of her vision. Each week, I did her sermon research for her with her guidance and read it aloud to her. She would construct a sermon in her thoughts. And then every Saturday evening, she'd ask me, what day is it? Saturday, I'd say. Am I preaching tomorrow, she'd ask? Yes, I'd say. But by that point, she had no memory of her sermon topic, no memory of it. And Sunday morning, we would go to church, and she still had no memory of what she meant to say. And that would be the case right up until she sat down in front of the congregation to deliver her message. And then she would remember. And she would preach for an hour, lucidly, brilliantly, beautifully, profoundly, with no sign of short-term memory loss. She packed the church Sunday after Sunday. The church members said, It's the Holy Spirit. The neuro-oncologist said, There's a tumor in the occipital lobe. I was moved by the domestic detail of this little vignette, so bathed as it was in love. But there also emerged a strange vision of the Holy Spirit and the neuro-oncologist standing side by side, smiling at one another at the strangeness of the world and its complexity. They were, the two of them, siblings, born of the same parents and sharing the same eternal bloodlines, curiosity and wonder. So why this animosity between science and religion for true religion, no matter the doctrine, is nothing other than wonder writ large. We may dissect the dragonfly and know all its parts and their usage, but the wonder of holding the marvelous creature in our hand, blinded by its beauty, is yet another kind of knowledge. Scientific and spiritual understandings impinge on one another, deepening conversation between the two. It is only our human handling of exploration that causes angst. What is sacred? What is secular? Is medicine not an art form? Can filmmaking not be theology? This is what sharing is at a deep level, to parse out the connections between things and find that we are standing on the same ground with different viewings. When we share elements of our worldviews, we share of ourselves. We risk exposure. We risk connection. And in risking connection, we connect. So here to illustrate all of this are two pieces of writing representing our scriptures and a song to illustrate our spiritual discipline. They all emerge from a specific context, centuries apart, but sharing a commonality of thought that binds them together. We begin with a classic scripture you will all know, churchgoers and non-alike, the first 19 verses from the book of Genesis in a modern translation. Is it science? Well, sort of. Is it poetry? Absolutely. But mostly, it is wonder and awe. 
It is followed by the poem Singularity, written by celebrated American poet Marie Howe as a tribute to Stephen Hawking and his work. Is it science? Sort of. Is it poetry? Absolutely. But mostly, it is wonder and awe. And both writings, though they are some 2,500 years apart, are theological writings in the truest sense, because they strive to understand that which unites us while reflecting the very human longings of the artists who created them. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. Translation, The Message, by Eugene Peterson. First this, God created the heavens and earth, all you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke, light, and light appeared. God saw that the light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day. He named the dark night. It was evening. It was morning. Day one. God spoke, sky in the middle of the waters. Separate water from water. God made sky. He separated the water under sky from the water above sky, and there it was. He named sky the heavens. It was evening. It was morning. Day two. God spoke, separate water beneath heaven. Gather into one place, land appear, and there it was. God named the land earth. He named the pool water ocean. He saw that it was good. God spoke, earth, green up, grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree, and there it was. Earth produced green seed-bearing plants, all varieties, and fruit-bearing trees of all kinds, and God saw that it was good. It was evening, it was morning, day three. God spoke, Lights, come out, shine in heaven's sky. Separate day from night, mark seasons and days and years. Lights in heaven's sky to give light to earth. And there it was. God made two lights, the larger to take charge of day, the smaller to be in charge of night. And he made the stars. God placed them in the heavenly sky to light up earth and oversee day and night to separate light and dark. God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day four.
Singularity by Marie Howe. Do you sometimes want to wake up to the singularity we once were? So compact, nobody needed a bed or food or money. Nobody hiding in the school bathroom or home alone, pulling open the drawer where the pills are kept. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Remember? There was no nature, no them, no tests to determine if the elephant grieves her calf or if the coral reef feels pain. Trashed oceans don't speak English or Farsi or French. Would that we could wake up to what we were when we were ocean and before that to when sky was earth an animal was energy, and rock was liquid, and stars were space, and space was not at all, nothing. Before we came to believe humans were so important, before this awful loneliness, can molecules recall it, what once was? Before anything happened, no I, no we, no one, no was, no verb, no noun, only a tiny, tiny dot brimming with is, 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 all, everything, home. And here is something that I learned from the meeting place of neuroscience and spirituality. More than learning how to use tools, more than being successful at violence, more than adapting to moving out of the forest into the grasslands of Africa, it was learning how to love and live with each other that drove human evolution. The spiritual practice of sharing is the spiritual practice of understanding ourselves as intricately connected and then reaching out to stand in solidarity with the other. Just hey. 
going to be starting a new book study next week, a book called Practicing Compassion. It is a slim little book, but a powerhouse of practicality, working with the notion that compassion is something that can be taught, learned, and practiced. I think everyone will find it profoundly helpful to their spiritual lives. I've ordered lots of books, and you can also purchase it online for your Kindle or computer instead. You will not need it for the first gathering, and we will be gathering on Friday evening at 7 p.m. Everyone is welcome. The Zoom coordinates will be on our website. Also this Sunday, that's today, Jamie and Anne McAlpine will be at Trinity from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. to collect monthly tithes and offerings that come in envelopes so you can pop by and see them but just by waving. They will have everything set up for you, so don't worry about all the details. And thank you to all of you who are there holding steady during this strange, unsettling time. I think marvelous things will emerge from it that we have not yet dreamed of. That, of course, is the Easter story, that goodness and new understandings, new illumination, may come from the deepest loss and sorrow. And we are an Easter people, all of us, not just Christians, all of us, who choose to seek out goodness and new thought and endless possibility right where we are, no matter the circumstances. Rise and resist might be the Easter story in a nutshell. It might have been Jesus' call to revolution way back when, but I think it might also be our call right now. Rise up from whatever dark place you find yourself in. Resist that old story that there isn't enough, that you need more, that other people are the trouble, and walk freely towards that new horizon that reminds you of everyone's value, for we are all family, all of us. Continue to be kind to one another and to yourself. And when you're not, when you falter, Remember that unless you are already dead, you have another breath coming. And each breath is an opportunity for resurrection, for doing things differently. And if you have to stop and apologize and reset yourself six dozen times a day, it is worth the effort. For when you do so, all the little twinkle lights that hold this crazy wild ride of a universe together they sparkle, and we are all covered in fairy dust, which pleases the heart of God, who wants all the Earth's children to play nicely together. A special thank you to all the folks at the Eco Commons Community Innovation Hub and EDGE for bringing us their wondrous vision and encouraging us all to seek commonality with our fellow pilgrims. We wish them, and all of us, traveling mercies for the journey. I'm going to let Bruce rock us on out today because we need some dance music.
She's away. 